Uh, the, there is a sermon outline, your order of services. Uh, let me actually invite you to have a look at that uh, so you can actually follow along. I'm going to pray for us as we uh, have a look at the Bible this morning, uh, that God might speak to us in and through His Word. So let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank You that You are not silent. We do thank You that in the in our weakness and the poverty of our lives and the brokenness of our lives, you speak to us and your word, as our brother Alan has just reminded us, comes not just as a word of rebuke and challenge, but it comes always as a word of comfort and encouragement. So strengthen and encourage us this Lord's day as we worship you. Continue to give us, Father, we know we experience so much pressure in business, we're always on the fly. Continue to give us Sunday to Sunday as we sit under your word, Give us a posture of unhurried space so that we might experience the joy of not just worshipping you in song and prayer, but we might enjoy worshipping you as we hear you speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This is our fifth week uh, of our I Believe series in the Apostles' Creed. If you're a visitor here at Grace Point, this is what we're doing for the next, uh, well, nine weeks. We're in week five now, (coughs) topical series in the Apostles' Creed. Then we hit the book of Romans. So it's a bit of unusual if you're visiting us because uh, it's not our usual preaching approach here at Grace Point. We don't normally actually look at one Bible passage and we work through that, uh, but we're in the middle of a topical series. But the Apostles' Creed, as I've said to many of you, uh, is really a summary of the essential truths of what we believe as Christians. What Christian people have anchored in for the last 1,800 years, truths that they have proclaimed and defended, truth that they have died for, truth that they have anchored their lives on, life-changing truths. Now, uh, we are in week five, so if you're a regular at Grace Point, let me actually remind you, there are four parts to the Apostles' Creed. What we believe about God the Father, what we believe about God the Son, what we believe about God the Holy Spirit, and then what we believe about the church. Now, we are still in the second part. If you have got your outlines in front of you and your order of services, <clears throat> you notice that uh, here in this part of the Creed, we're looking at what we believe about Jesus, God's Son, And the Apostles' Creed, because we are going to recite that at the end of our service today, you notice that it's the largest section in the Apostles' Creed. Um, It's about the birth of Jesus. It's about His death. And today, we're going to look at, basically, His resurrection and His ascension. So, can you see that line over there? On the third day, He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven in the seat at the right hand of the Father. Like I said, the Apostles' Creed is in your order of service Uh, on the last page, and I want you you to notice, and you may not have noticed it, uh, this might be the first time you notice it, a story is actually being told in the Apostles' Creed. Do you know the Apostles' Creed is telling us the Bible story? Uh, From heaven, God actually sent His Son, Jesus, who descends to the lowest possible place, dying at the cross for us, crucified, dead, and was buried. But now we read He ascends from the grave, right? He rose from the dead, ascends into heaven, heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He returns to the highest possible place. Now, as the creed unfolds, you're going to then read that He sends His Spirit. Uh, and then, then we read of the church and what happens there, right? So it's actually the story. It's, it's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the Bible. Uh, but more than that, it's actually the story of Jesus' work uh, and the unfolding of His work in our lives. Which is why I keep saying this, and maybe you're a visitor here at Grace Point, or maybe you're not a Christian, a friend has brought you. Christianity is not about what I do. It's not about me trying to be a better person. It's not about me trying to actually pay for my guilt in life. It's not about me trying to earn God's approval or acceptance. When you say, I believe, as a Christian, 
you're saying, I trust in Jesus' work for me. I trust in His birth, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. Now, this morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're looking at the resurrection of Jesus and His ascension. Uh, sermon titles there for you, which sort of sums it up. Uh, he rose, um, He ascends, or he, and then He sits. So, in your outlines, have a look with me. <coughs> and what I want to do is, I want to actually start by helping you understand the meaning and significance of the resurrection. But to do that, we need to pause and first understand the tyranny of death. Okay? Now, obviously, every time I speak about death and there's teenagers in the room or there's young people in the room between the ages of 18 and 22, um, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Because if you're a young person in the room, right, if you're a young person, even if you're in, in high school, or some of you, I can see a few high schoolers here, uh, <coughs> you might not see death as a tyranny. It's not within your life experience. Uh, it's an old people thing. But I suspect even if you're a young person uh, in high school or maybe a young adult, You know what it's like, don't you? All of you know what it's like to experience helplessness and powerlessness and loneliness. You know what it's like to experience fear and separation and injustice and pain. You do. Uh, And you rage against it. You fight against it. You rage against the dying of the light in your life all the time. Uh, We look for it in in the support of friends. We see counselors to help us cope. We think if we had this or that, we would be more in control of our lives. We think if our circumstances change, we would be content. We wouldn't be so lonely. Life would be better. We would be happier. And so we rage against the dying of the light in our lives all the time. And what you need to realize is that you are experiencing a small taste of death. Because death in, in, the, in that extreme, death in that extreme is the ultimate experience of helplessness and anxiety and loneliness and powerlessness and fear and separation and injustice and pain. And so, even if you never experience the loss of a loved one, or even if you have never experienced personally death in your life, <coughs> you do know what it's like to live in the chokehold of death in the circumstances you find yourself in, even as a young person. And there will come a time when you will experience the full tyranny of death either in the loss of someone you love or when you face it yourself. Everyone does. Death is the ultimate tyranny, the ultimate grief, the ultimate separation, the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate powerlessness, the ultimate injustice, and the ultimate pain. No one cheats death. And I don't know if you realize it, if you look around you in life, life is actually shaped by our desire to cheat death to avoid it, to prolong life, to preserve and protect life. One author puts it like this, right? Engineers try to build safer cars and safer roads to prevent us from prematurely dying in traffic accidents. We shut down borders with other countries in order to stop people carrying potential deadly pathogens from entering. We know what that's like in the last few years. We invest huge amounts of money trying to find cures, incurable diseases that can randomly strike us down. Our culture of safety and our paranoia over security is driven by one single thing, the fear of death. In the words of the poet Dylan Thomas, we rage against the dying of the light. In fact, you think with me uh, for a moment, and I've said this before at Grace Point, this is what drives the beauty and the health and the wellness industry, because people are trying to delay and stop the onset of aging, which reminds us that we're dying. The body beautiful industry that offers you the possibility to look young forever, right? Right? tight skin, wrinkle-free, 
health and well-being centers that offer you the possibility of staying physically ahead of the game as you age, from trying to look young to working to staying young to trying to reverse the effects of aging. Did you realize this? We live in a culture that rages against the dying of the light. Now, what's really surprising is that we do live in a culture that believes death is natural, right? Biology says it's normal, people age and die, yet we do everything in in our power to resist it. Even though we live in a culture that believes death is natural, we do everything in our power to keep it at bay. And even though we live in a culture that tells us death is natural, notice we are so filled with grief and sorrow when death comes. We're angered because it just doesn't seem fair that people we love die. We're filled with a sense of helplessness and powerlessness when we know someone we love dies. And we feel the pain of separation. Friends, can I say to you, even when biology and the secular says it's natural, your heart actually tells you something is wrong. Because you can't imagine something better. You can't imagine and you do wish for something better. You want something better. Your heart actually rages against the dying of the light. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that maybe death is not the way things are supposed to be because it doesn't feel natural. Uh, The poet Dylan Thomas writes that we should not go gentle into the dying of the night. We should rage, rage against the dying of the light. So death is tyranny because it's not natural, and that's why we live in a culture that rages against it. In every sphere of life, everything is built against holding on and staying the onset of decay and brokenness in our lives. And so Christian or not, religious or secular, we are filled with grief and sorrow and loss and loneliness and anxiety and fear and pain because it just doesn't seem fair that we die and people we love die. Death is the ultimate tyranny in life. Now, here's a question I want to raise this morning. What if there was someone who could go ahead of you and experience the tyranny of death for you and overcomes it? It would be a game changer, isn't it, in my life and your life? Well, we actually believe that someone has actually done that for us. Notice what we read in the Apostles' Creed, and it's there in your sermon outline. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. He goes before us and experiences the tyranny of death in our place. He goes to the place of the dead. But notice the death of Jesus isn't the last word, is it? We don't just read crucified, dead, buried, descended to the dead, We also read, on the third day, he rose from the dead. Now, you might not be a Christian, but I reckon even if you are not a religious person, even if you didn't believe in the resurrection, you would wish it were true. Because that's what all of us want in life. All of us, Christian or non-Christian, this is what we all want in life. We love our heroes. We want a hero in our lives that can actually face our greatest fears. To have a hero that's strong enough to face what we can't control in our lives. To, to, to know a hero able to always save us from what threatens us in life. To know a hero uh, powerful enough to overcome our enemies. Well, can I say to you, the Bible teaches us that Jesus comes as the hero of heroes to face the ultimate tyranny in our lives, death itself. And, the, and as the hero of heroes, notice he overcomes the ultimate tyranny for you. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Now, Uh, If you have your Bibles, maybe you want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to verse 8. There, Paul actually says, there is no Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 3. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Right? Non-negotiable. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's why He died for our sins. <clears throat> he was buried, He was raised, and then on the third day, according to the Scriptures, He was raised. Then He appears to key first to the 12, to 500, to James. Um, now, you look at those verses, and notice what He says. He died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day. Notice Jesus did not rise like a ghost. Some disembodied spirit. Some people say that, right? Jesus didn't rise physically. It was a spiritual, res- uh, physically it was a re- spiritual resurrection. No, it's very specific, isn't it? On the third day, in time and space, he rose, and he appeared to specific groups of people. Kephas, Peter, right? The 12, the 500. Uh, effectively, men and women living within the lifespan of Paul's letter. Now, the gospel accounts of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also tell us that he rose on the third day. Very specific. He appeared physically, and we're told he ate with them, right? And so, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It's so important for us to understand is, the Christian faith, or the claims of the Christian faith, what you read in the Bible is grounded in historical account. It's recorded historical event, and that's how it's actually treated. Now, Paul goes on, and I really now want to look at verse 12 to verse 18, very quickly. Paul goes on to say that without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity, Right? Have a look at verse 12 to verse 18 very briefly. He says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there's two things. You and I, we're either deluded or we're deceived. Okay? We're either crazy or we've been lied to and we're deceived. Uh, because it, it makes no sense to put your hands in the life of a dead man. It makes no sense to worship and pray to a dead man. In fact, Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then those of us who have trusted Him are lost forever. And those of us uh, who are alive, who continue to trust Him, are very foolish people, right? Why? Because you're trusting a dead man who has gone ahead of you to die for your sins, who remains dead and buried, right? Which means your faith is useless and you're still in your sins. But this is, where, uh, this is what I really want to focus on this morning, the resurrection. So have a look at verse 20 to verse 23, okay? It's, look at what it says. Paul says, no, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You see it, verse 20? Verse 20? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of Jesus comes through another man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ first, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus rising on the third day, undoes death. Let that sink in. He empties the place of the dead, what we saw last week. He empties the grave. He brings resurrected life to those who have died. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who have died. He goes ahead of us as our hero of heroes to face death. He faces our ultimate enemy, and He kills it. The resurrection of Jesus is the start of the death of death. Jesus walked ahead of us into the valley of the shadow of death. He experienced our suffering. He took our sin on Himself, our death, so that we might follow behind Him and walk out with Him out of the valley of the shadow of death. And that's why you read in these verses, each in turn. Can you see there? Christ the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. And so, 
This is what you need to understand about the resurrection. Because He rose on the third day, because He has gone ahead of me, I too will rise. Did you hear that? That means the, the chokehold of death itself and every experience of death in your life, in the circumstances you find yourself in, death by a thousand cuts in your life in its breath, your feelings of helplessness and grief and loneliness and powerlessness and fear and separation and injustice and pain, though I feel it now, though I experience it now in life, it will never be the last word. Why? Because my Savior has gone ahead of me and He rose on the third day. Do you believe that? You know, we've sung it in so many songs here in our church. There's a peace I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say, it is well. Why? Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise when He calls my name. We'll sing one of those songs. We're going to sing, I suspect, at the end today. I will rise as Christ was raised to life. And now in Him, I live. No fear in life. No fear in death. Because that's what it means when you say, I believe on the third day He rose from the dead. Do you believe it? Jesus asked Martha the same question. John 11, verse 25, 26. Jesus said to Martha, she experienced grief, the loss of her brother. She, Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You might be here today and you might not be a Christian. Maybe you're a secular, you're a non-religious person. You're probably unlikely to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> but even people who don't and can't accept the resurrection actually do wish it were true. That it's possible that death isn't the last word. Because we want a love that never ends. We want relationships that aren't parted by death. We want bodies they don't break down and get sick, bodies that aren't subject to cancer and decay. We want a reversal and a restoration. We wish for it. We all wish it were true. Well, Christian people believe the resurrection of Jesus changes everything because Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, the creed doesn't stop there because we also read, uh, if you have a look with me, on the third day, He rose from the dead. And then we read, He ascended from, into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, this is how I describe this part of the creed. Maybe I shouldn't describe it this way, but this is the closest I can come to. You know, in the old days, there used to be late night, um, you know, infomercials, commercials. And you know those steak knife commercials? Some of you are old enough to remember that. But you know those steak knife commercials where the salesman says, but wait, there's more? But wait, it gets even better if you buy these steak knives, right? There is more because it does get even better. And you're going to find it here in this next part of the creed, right? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, you read those verses, Jesus ascended into heaven, and you sort of go, you know, is the creed saying, I believe Jesus returned to heaven. He went home. That's it. Pretty anticlimactic, isn't it? Uh, I believe Jesus has gone home. Is that what you're saying in the creed? Of course not. It's saying a lot more than that, right? The problem is that um, a lot of people actually treat the ascension of Jesus like the exclamation mark at the end of the resurrection. No one focuses on it. Okay? It's quite sad. I read a book on, um, this week on what do you believe by a really famous Christian author uh, on what do you believe. 
got to the resurrection, and then there was nothing after that. Uh, there, there was the return of Christ, but there was nothing on the ascension. Really surprised me, actually. It was one of the newer ones. But I want to suggest to you that the ascension of Jesus is more than just, oh, I believe Jesus went home. It's more than that, right? <clears throat> the ascension of Jesus is telling us something about the ongoing work of Jesus. Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus doing now? Uh, you know, is he just sitting on the throne doing nothing? Well, it's telling us something about the ongoing work of Jesus. One author puts it like this. <clears throat> if the resurrection affirms Jesus has conquered death, the final enemy, and now lives forever, the ascension of Jesus affirms that he now reigns forever over all. He's in control over all. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 6, verse 19, to verse 20 says, the ascension of Jesus is an anchor for our souls. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say the death of Jesus is an anchor for our souls. It is, but it says the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is an anchor for our souls. And you know how an anchor works, right? Uh, you know, the, the boat is anchored so that in the storm, it's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't blow and move basically with the, with the wind and the waves and the storm, right? It's anchored. It's stable. It's secure. And so the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 6 verse 19 verse 20 says, Whatever is happening in your life, whatever uncertainties the future holds, whatever pain you're experiencing right now, whatever pressure you're feeling, know this, because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, there you will find an anchor in your Christian life. Right? So the most obvious question is, how does knowing that Jesus has ascended, how does knowing that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, how is that an anchor for your soul right now? Now, the hint is actually Hebrews chapter 1, okay? Which is why we got Raymond to read it for you. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is what we read. Have a look in your Bibles with me. After Jesus made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Oh, I get that. He died, he rose, he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what the creed says. Now, it is important to understand this. The image of sitting down comes from the kings of the ancient Near East and the Greek-speaking world, right? Because what actually happened is the kings would sit after they secured victory, after they won a great battle, right? Their work is complete, so they sit down. Now, we get that. Uh, we read in the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, descended to the dead, third day he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. So, Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus' work is completed. He made purification for sin. He has saved. It is done. He faced death. He overcame it. His work is finished. He sits. Okay? Hebrews 1.3. He made purification for sin. After he did that, he sat down. And so we kind of think, ah, oh, Jesus is inactive now because he's resting. Because when we think of sitting down and, and work being finished, we think it's like our work. Adam Lamb comes back from a hard day of work because he's worked 12-hour day, right? What does he do when he sit, comes home uh, to his home in Barala, right? He, he sits on the couch and he goes, oh, Mom, get me a beer. No, no, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. No, no, Alan is a good boy. He doesn't do that. He goes to the fridge and gets it himself. He sits down, lounges, right? Uh, turns on the TV and then he sits. I'm sitting down because my work for the day is done. Netflix for the next six hours, Okay. And so it's like we think of sitting down as inactivity, but no, 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 no. That's not how it works, okay? Because when the kings of the ancient Near East sat down, they also sat down to carry out their work. 
to, to actually do their work. That's what they did. They sat down to do their work. Because having secured victory, having conquered, they sit on their throne to rule. Now, you and I know that because we've watched those, you know, those movies. Uh, you know, uh, you, know you, you remember from, from uh, the, the Marvel Universe, right? When Odin sits on his throne, he sits on his throne to rule. He's executing justice, right? He's making decisions. He's issuing commands. Kings sat down to rule because they're victorious, because they've conquered to direct, to command. Now, the closest I could think of, it's true in our world as well. You know, you go into a, you know, maybe you've been hauled before, judged before. Maybe you've, you know, been speeding. I don't know. Um, You guys are good people. I suspect you've probably never spent in your lives. You've never stood before a magistrate. Uh, But you know, when you stand before a magistrate in a court of law, uh, for those of you who don't know what happens, Warren does. He knows what it's like to experience that. He's, he's actually a police officer, lawyer, so it's okay. So it's not, he wasn't there as someone who was being <coughs> charged. Uh, he was there making, giving witness. But what actually happens, you've seen it in movies, right? You go into a court of law, they say, stand. Why? Because the judge is coming in, right? And then notice what happens. What does the judge do, the magistrate does? He or she sits down. Have you ever noticed that? And then you sit down. And, and when the magistrate sits down, what are they doing? They are ruling. They're in control, in charge, right? You make noise, you kick up a a ruckus in that court of law, and they will execute their command, and they remove you, okay? When the court is in session, the magistrate sits to do their work. I want to say say to you, this is what's happening here. Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father is exercising His victorious rule over all. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's given the Father's God-like authority over the universe. Now, do you know the most mentioned and alluded psalm in the New Testament? If you can think of a psalm, what's the most mentioned and alluded psalm in the New Testament? It's actually Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 7. And it's actually mentioned here. That's why we read Hebrews 1, because notice he sits at the right hand of the Father, having made purification for sin. And then you read in verse 13, there's more happening Because it's to Jesus, the Son, that God says, verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Rule at my right hand and and bring the universe into submission. The ascension of Jesus tells us that Jesus hasn't just returned and gone home. No, it's telling us Jesus is now enthroned as God's chosen king who rules in control over all. And you know, when you say in the creed, when you affirm in the creed, I believe he rose from the dead, he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that is what you are saying. Uh, some of you have heard that, that often quoted uh, words, you know, the theologian of uh, the, um, Abraham Kuyper, you know, you hear it in sermons all the time, where Kuyper actually says, there is not a square inch of creation There's not a square inch of the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He claims it because he's enthroned, and he covers it in control because he's enthroned. Uh, Tim Keller uh, rewrites this more personally, and he says, you know, guys, have you realized this? There's not a square inch in the whole domain of your life over which Christ, who is sovereign and risen, does not cry, mine. He claims it, your life, and he covers it in absolute control. 
which means that he's not ex- just extending his sovereign claim in his enthronement. He's in control over your life, your personal life, your work, your finances, your family, your kids, your relationship, your circumstances, your struggle, your loss, your loneliness, your hopes, your ambitions. He claims it as Lord, and He rules over it. He covers it. That's what it means to say, I believe. He ascended to, into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, some of you here in this room are parents. You've got little kids. Some of you got older kids. Can I say to you, don't just teach your kids about the death of Jesus. It's important they know that. It's important for them to know Jesus loves them, died for them. Don't stop there. Because they need to know that Jesus remains for them. That He hasn't just disappeared, right? He's lounging and not doing anything, uninvolved in their lives. Teach them. Jesus has gone ahead of them. And He's taken His place as God's chosen King. And He's doing two things. He's laying claim on their lives as boss, as the enthroned risen King. But He's also covering their lives, in control, looking after them. He sits enthroned in control. Teach them Jesus as work. Jesus, teach them Jesus is at work. He's boss of everything, their lives, and He's in control of everything. They can trust Him. Teach your kids that. But there's something else that the creed is telling us because there's actually more. And, and I suspect this second bit, you got it there in your outline, so I'm not hiding it from you. This is probably new to many people here. In fact, I suspect it's going to be life-changing and mind-boggling if I said to you right now, Jaden, what is Jesus doing in heaven? Because Jaden's very sharp. He does a lot of reading. He was in my book club for the whole of last year, which means that he must be really up there now. Most people in this room, if you've been listening, Jaden and most of you would say, Jesus is at work ruling the universe. Ah, go to the top of the class. He's now in control because he sits at the right hand of the Father. Go to the top of the class. But there's a second thing. That's the second thing Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. He's actually praying for you as high priest. He's interceding for you as your high priest. Romans 8.34. Now, we, we know Romans 8 fairly well, but you know, there's, there's this little note in Romans 8.34 that we often miss. Romans 8.34 says, You and I, we need not fear condemnation because Jesus who died for us and is risen at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Or Hebrews 7 verse 25 that was read for us says that in Jesus we have a high priest who saves completely. Notice, saves completely from beginning to end. He saves completely from beginning to end. Why? Because He always lives to intercede for us before the Father. The word intercede means to make petition, to pray, to appeal. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father? He's actually praying for you. Now, it's important to understand this because someone actually asked me last week, oh, does it mean if Jesus is praying for me, does it mean that the work of the cross is insufficient, it's incomplete? No, 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 no. The work of Jesus dying for our sins, complete. He prays for us because it's the ongoing application of the work of the cross in our lives. He's praying for our ongoing protection and preservation and growth and battle with sin. In fact, I mean, I wish I had more time. If you really want to know what Jesus is praying for you, and you might want to do it this week, spend time in John 17. John 17 is a very helpful uh, 
uh, example, uh, picture of the intercessory work of Jesus. John 17 is traditionally what we call the high priestly prayer work of Jesus, prayer of Jesus. Because in John 17, you see that Jesus tells us what he prays, not just for his disciples, but for us. The mind boggles, you know, if you think about that. Jesus tells us what he prays for the disciples and for us, for you and for me. He prays to the Father. Here's a summary, right? He prays to the Father for our spiritual protection and preservation, verse 11 to verse 16. He prays that His truth will come to bear in our lives, that we will be set apart because of His truth to live for Him in the world. He prays that we may be united in love as God's people. He prays that you and I will make it to the end and be with Him in glory, verse 24. Have you ever heard the Savior pray for you? Have a look at John 17. Did you know he's at work right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father praying for you, for your protection and preservation and growth and battle with sin? The writer to the Hebrew says, Jesus is your high priest, doesn't just make atonement for your sin, he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Right? I might know, I might not know my needs, but the Savior does at the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for me. I might be overwhelmed by my circumstances in life, but my Savior knows my needs and is interceding for me. I might be struggling, but my Savior knows and is interceding for me. Now, take a step back because you've got to pause and let that sink in. Because that's what it means to say, I believe He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe He's not just died and risen and is alive forevermore. I, I believe He's not just ruling everything. But I believe He is interceding and praying for me before my Father in heaven, bringing my needs to the Father, praying for my protection and preservation and growth and struggles. You know, good old Maddie Chan and I were discussing the prayer work of Jesus last week. You know, Matt Chan, he always thinks ahead, right? So he reads ahead and he was reading ahead of the creed. And he'd say, ah, is this what the creed is saying? What's this? What's that? And the more you think about it, you know, we were messaging each other on WhatsApp discussing this. And the more you think about it, he said, and I agree with him, the mind truly boggles, doesn't it? Because I don't just have a Savior who died for my sins. I don't just have a Savior uh, who rose from the dead. I don't just have a Savior who rules and is control over all. I have a Savior who prays for me. Did you hear that? You have a Savior who prays for you in your struggles, for your growth, for your protection and preservation. Maddie said it so well, Matt Chan said it so well, better than I could, that I'm going to seal his little quote here, but I'm going to attribute it to Matt Chan. He said, we have, a we have the cross, we have the resurrection, plus the living Jesus who rules over all, who continually intercedes and prays for us. I thought, oh, what a beautiful summary. We have the cross, the resurrection, plus the living Jesus who rules over all and who continually intercedes and prays for us. And they are prayers that are personal and particular, perpetual, that is ongoing, powerful and effective, preserving, protecting, perfect. Unlike any prayers for you I can make, unlike our prayers for each other. Let me actually close with two thoughts. <clears throat> Uh, then you're in the um, outline as well. Two thoughts that may be helpful for you, something you can think through. One, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is actually meant to comfort and encourage us to stand firm in our service to the Lord Jesus. 
right? Did you ever realize that every grief and sorrow, every pain and suffering you go through, every injustice, every loneliness, every brokenness you experience in life is a very small taste of the ultimate grief, the ultimate pain, the ultimate sorrow, the ultimate separation, death itself. And if Jesus, if Jesus, right, has taken the sting out of death, then it means you and I, we need not be afraid. Even when we experience the shadow of death in our lives, when we find ourselves helpless and grieving uh, and feeling things have been unjust, when we're powerless and fearful and suffering, and that's the reason why Paul goes on, right? 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, you might want to land there as we bring this, our time to a close in the next five minutes or so. What, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 to verse 58. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, where, O oh death, is your sting? It's not permanent. Where, O oh death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, for He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. He's an anchor for your soul. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord. Keep serving the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in the vain. Living in the service of the risen Lord will never be in vain. Sacrificing for Christ will never be in vain. Being faithful for the risen Jesus, even when it brings grief, will not be in vain. Suffering loss and loneliness as you serve Jesus will never be in vain. Why? Because He's risen. And because He's risen, you too will rise. Death in your life will never be the last word. But even more than that, I want you to hear this. Your current experience of suffering and loss and grief and loneliness and separation serving Jesus will never be the last word. That's what Paul's saying. Listen very carefully. The power to face so much of life's brokenness comes from knowing that Jesus is alive and has gone ahead of you. And He's gone ahead of you and punch through death, the ultimate suffering in your life. And if he's done that, it means that everything you're experiencing now will not be the last word. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself to serving the Lord. Do you believe that? Of course, the valleys in life can be dark. Some of you in this room, you're experiencing that. I have people at Litcombe who are experiencing that as well. Maybe you're afraid of the future. Maybe you're suffering some sickness that you've not told anyone about in this room. Maybe you're experiencing some grief in your life. Maybe you're losing heart because something has happened in your life. Can I encourage you to remember, your Savior has actually gone ahead of you and blazed the way through for you. And because He has risen, you too will rise. So stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself to serving the Lord because He will not be in vain. That's the power to save, to to face brokenness in life. But the resurrection of Jesus also gives you the the power to give yourself to fully serving the Lord. Uh, It also comes from knowing that Jesus is alive and has gone ahead of you. Uh, One of the books I read this week, reading a book on the resurrection, uh, and it said, we are called to live lives of love and service. True? Of course it's true as Christians. We're called to live lives free from the desperation of trying to squeeze every drop out of life we have. I would add to that. Do you know this? The resurrection actually frees us up from FOMO in life. That's worth writing down. The resurrection actually frees us up from FOMO in life, right? Fear of missing out. Because we're trying to get everything out of life. 
It frees us up to live generously and recklessly serving Jesus because the resurrection tells us us, and if you're a family, we and our children will never miss out following Jesus, sacrificing for Him, giving and living recklessly for Him. You know, far too many Christians live their lives like this life is it, so better max out on life. Don't want to miss out on opportunities. I want to make sure my kids don't miss out. And in doing so, we fill our lives grabbing at stuff because we're afraid of missing out. We cram our children's lives with stuff and activities. And when you look around the room at the church, everyone around you lives like that. And you think, whoa, gosh, you know, if I don't keep up, I'm going to miss out too. I want to be left behind. And so you live like that. The reason why so many Christians suffer FOMO the reason why the majority of Christians will never live generously and recklessly serving Jesus is because they, they think they're going to miss out in life. The present is the only horizon in their lives. The reason why the majority of Christians will wear a cross but never carry the cross is because they don't actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection says, because of Jesus... The best is yet to come. Do you believe that? There's no loss for the Christian who follows his risen Savior. There's, there's no loss for the Christian who serves his risen Savior. Another author I read puts it like this. The future horizon of the resurrection gives purpose and drive. It should drive Christian living in the present. Does it drive your Christian living? If you believe in the resurrection... If you're contemplating missionary service, full-time ministry, adding your name to serving on the serving rosters at church, learning to teach the Bible, becoming a Sunday school teacher, opening your home in hospitality, supporting a child in poverty, volunteering to spend time with the elderly, supporting migrants and refugees in the community, wondering what you can do to stop sex trafficking, do it because of the resurrection. Here's the reason why. The resurrection moves us to take risks for God because the resurrection proves that God is behind us, He is for us, and today He is with us. All our losses and sacrifices will never be the last word. Because He is risen, you too will rise. You will never lose out. And so the work you do for the risen Lord will never be in vain. Death is not the end, and what you do now in serving the Lord echoes into eternity because of the resurrection. The work you do for the Lord will echo into eternity in the people you love and serve and teach and care for and reach out to and provide for and share with. Do you believe that? See that? It's meant to comfort us and it's meant to encourage us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Here's the last thing. The ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, is meant to give us confidence and assurance in life. Remember, the, asc the ascension means two things, right? <clears throat> he rules over all, which means He's in control, but He's also interceding for us, praying for us. Your protection, preservation, growth, and ongoing battle. I know we've started the year, and I know we start the year with great optimism, and I don't know what the rest of the year will look like. And maybe this is here to prepare us for the coming year. But... Also in the room, maybe, just maybe, the reason why, as we anticipate the year, we, we often find ourselves 
wavering in the Christian life, overwhelmed by our circumstances, maybe the reason why we so easily lose heart or we get distracted is because we forget who sits on the higher throne in our lives and over our circumstances. We forget who rules over what's happening in our lives. We forget who's praying for us, our protection and preservation and growth. So I want to encourage you to do something this week, okay? I want to really encourage you to do something this week. Each morning, before you go to work, or maybe you go to school, or maybe you go to your place of study, maybe as you prepare your children for school, okay, through the day, maybe, as you find yourself despairing, as you meet trouble and hardship, as you experience anxiety, as you feel overwhelmed with the kids, as you're gripped by worry, as you feel yourself being emotionally overwhelmed, when guilt consumes you, when fear cripples you, remind yourself who sits on the throne. Remind yourself, who sits on the throne? Your Savior is alive. He has dealt with your sin. He sits on the throne of heaven. He's in control. He isn't absent. He's not blind to what's happening in your life. He knows what's happening right there, right now, and He's interceding for you. Remember that. Can I say to you, you don't have to be in control because He is in control. Did you know that? You don't have to be in control because He is in control. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Has that ever occurred to you to know that I don't need to be in control? It's okay because my Savior has my life and the circumstances of my life in His control. But even more than that, He is interceding for me and praying for me in the chaos of my life. Father, strengthen Ellie and her fears. Father, give Bobby a godlike attitude as he's treated unjustly. Father, protect and keep Lewis as he faces doubts. Father, fill Sharon with the truth of your promises so that she's filled with hope this week. Father, fill Jackson with the truth of your love so he'll love others with my love. Your Savior knows your weaknesses, your struggle, your pain, your suffering, your circumstances, and he's praying for you at the right hand of the Father. And the prayers of Jesus are not just personal and particular. They are ongoing, powerful and effective, preserving, protecting, and perfect, unlike my prayers for you. Church, your Savior does not just rule. He is for you in His work at the cross, but He's also for you in His rule and intercession for you. Your Savior did not just work on the cross for you. He continues His work for you as He sits at the right hand of the Father. He exercises His rule and He prays for you. And so this week, let me encourage you to rest and anchor in His ascension to the right hand of the Father. Let me pray for for you as the music team comes up and leads us in songs, helping us to respond this morning. Our Father in heaven, we look right now to the higher throne Cast our eyes heavenward at the one who has gone ahead of you, who has died but who is risen, who sits at your right hand, who rules over the circumstances of our lives and our world right now, who knows us personally, who has gone ahead of us as our Savior, King. Help us, help us look to Him. Help help us see Him on the higher throne. And help us find ourselves resting in His rule and control over the circumstances of our lives. Help us see He has paved the way for us so that everything we go through right now 
Help us see He has broken a way through it, and our grief and our suffering and everything we experience in life and our circumstances as we give ourselves to serving You, it's never going to be the last word because of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Help us see that the best is yet to come, and help us rest because He is in control, and He is for us, interceding for us each day, even when we find ourselves out of control. And so we give you thanks and we look to you today because He is risen. Bury in our hearts this wonderful truth. We too will rise. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing.